Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. I'm Jono. I'm uh, on staff here as one of the pastors. And last weekend I had the chance of being with our Cambridge congregation as we had our first ever Vision Sunday and talk about these things, which is super cool. But it dawned on me as I was in Canberra, and if you've visited there or if you're from there, if you're watching from there, um, there's like this, this uh, part right in the center of the city, which is like an iconic, you know, building. It's our parliament house. And I'm mindful, I wasn't planning on doing this, but after the events of the past, even the past weekend, I'm mindful that for 2,000 years, Jesus' followers have been encouraged and indeed instructed from the very beginning to approach our leaders, our civil leaders, differently to how the rest of the world does. In fact, Jesus' followers have always been instructed to pray for their leaders. And I'm not, you know, I haven't seen, um, you know, a whole lot of the stuff that I studied in uni from modern history, certainly not ancient history, but we kind of all have this sense that history is being made at the moment. It's, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a blank page and there isn't much of a guide to what's happening in our communities, and our planet right now. And so there's a lot of division, you know? You don't need me to tell you this. You're smart. You're watching. We're probably, if we asked everyone's opinion here, we're probably all divided on a whole lot of stuff. But Jesus followers had never played by the rules of division, right? Jesus followers always been encouraged to help be part of the solution, to bring together. So what I want to do, I'm going to pray for our political leaders, and I would love for you to join me. You might have feelings. You might, I'm sure you do, or opinions, and I'm not I'm saying you're opinions or your feelings are not valid or more important or less important than someone else's. Indeed, you might not even be a Jesus follower here, someone who uh, wouldn't consider God even to be real, and so you're not sure how this works. So as Jesus follows, we are encouraged to believe for the wisdom of our Heavenly Father, to be over our leaders as they are trying to make impossible decisions that no matter what they decide, they're going to upset somebody who wants to be in that role. But these are real people with families and children. They have media cameras in front of them all day, every day. They have fighting opinions, all those things. This isn't a political thing. This is a Jesus thing. And so, Heavenly Father, we can't imagine what it's like running the universe. But we have a small glimpse to men and women who have to run communities and states and borders and nations. So we pray for our leaders and we pray for your wisdom over them. We pray for our premiers and our prime minister and our politicians, Lord, and may we not be counted amongst those who simply voice our opinions and opposition. We wanna voice our prayers for them today. We're asking for wisdom around them. We're asking that you would bless Australia. Would you help us be a nation that cares for the vulnerable and the weak? May we not be a nation that falls into fear, but as a nation that continues to bring light and hope, not only to its own people, but to nations around us. Lord, we need you. We ask for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good on you guys. <clears throat> Isn't it true that necessities often want to the biggest catalyst for innovation. When you are backed into a corner and you're, uh, the, a response is needed or you have to somehow find a solution to a problem and you might not have a problem that's clearly mapped out for you or a solution that's clearly mapped out, you have to get creative. You have to innovate. In fact, some of the most amazing innovations and uh, inventions that have happened throughout history is because we were forced to come up with creative solutions for the problems that existed. Um, when I was about 11 years of age, my dad decided to take me and my brothers on a camping trip. It was really hunting, but I'm not sure if that offends some people here. 
nothing was killed other than our pride over that weekend because one of the guys, we were climbing down certain cliffs, a rock dislodged, hit one of the young guys in the back. He was launched off the cliff. And so we're all stuck down in the bottom of a ravine in southern New South Wales, a little place called Narriga. And so we were stuck there in the bottom. And eventually our families realized we weren't coming home. It had gotten dark. And so they'd feared the worst. And so emergency crews came out looking for us. And the first people that came were a bunch of uh, bushfire officers, that, sorry if you're a part of those people of collection, I don't know the term to use. But they were drunk, they were at the pub, and it came over the radio, you know, people are dead in the ravine. And so in the middle of the night, as we were all shivering in the cold, it started raining, we hear this, and this bunch of head torch come down, winding down this, the side of this mountain. And so they found us, and they just assumed we were dead, or someone was dead, because we were hoping for like blankets, or for food, or for rescue equipment. They brought none of that. They brought body bags. Now, you might think that's horrible, but for an 11-year-old who was shivering and wet and cold, a body bag seemed to be a great innovation to keep me dry and warm. So that night, I slept, not in a tent, nor a sleeping bag, but a body bag. (laughs) Necessity is one of the biggest catalysts for innovation. Now, I want you to consider this for a moment from another perspective. And just in case you're wondering, where the heck is he going? Remember the series, Bend, Don't, Break, all right? Often I think you and I can fall into the trap, I certainly know this is true of me, where we might give up too soon on a solution to a problem or defining a solution or on an opportunity, or we give up too soon even on a person because of a problem or a tension that we encounter. And instead of maybe hanging on a little tighter, maybe bending a little, we don't realize the potential that this opportunity or indeed the person in front of us might have. And in moments where perhaps a little bit of flexibility or bending might be necessary, a bit of negotiation, adaptability or innovation, you know, bending, we choose instead to quit, walk out, or maybe even break up. And in moments where you and I need to bend with, we're often tempted to break up. And I want to talk about this for a moment because maybe there's a relationship in your life or an opportunity in your life, or a dream that you have that you attempted to give up on, to walk out on, to think there's no creative, innovative way of working through this. Maybe when we're tempted to, to break up, maybe what you're supposed to do is bend with. And I think many times we have broken up with dreams or plans or maybe even a relationship because of a tension that we deemed irredeemable. And in the same way, and here's where I want to get to today, perhaps we can do or attempted to do or have done or know someone who's done this and have walked away from faith for reasons that they deemed were a deal breaker. And if you're someone like that this morning, perhaps you're watching online or you're in the room or you know someone like this, maybe your spouse or a kid or a friend is like this, and they're tempted to walk away from faith or they've kind of got this walking on a knife's edge, or maybe you have walked away from faith in God because you faced something, a real tension, a real problem, and you deemed that it was irredeemable and you labeled it a deal breaker when it comes to faith. And so if you're in that category this morning, maybe you've walked away from faith altogether and if you've tuned in this morning, you're in the building this morning because you may be given it one last shot or you're curious or maybe you've got nowhere else to turn or perhaps you're someone here and the last 18 months has tested you like never before, I certainly know it has tested my trust in the goodness of God like I've never, ever known. And if you're in that place and you're tempted to quit, to break up with faith, 
I want you to give me a few moments this morning to kind of break this down and maybe look at some solutions here where we can bend with rather than break up from faith. Because my suspicion is that often the reasons that we've given for walking away from faith, funnily enough, should never have been the reasons for faith in the first place. And if you've ever had a conversation with someone that had the part of life that they just couldn't, they just couldn't come to terms with and they deemed this is the reason I'm no longer going to believe in God or follow Jesus or not let this be part of my life or maybe never even engage with this, perhaps the reasons that they gave for walking away from faith should never have been the reasons for them to trust God in the first place. They were peripheral issues. They were kind of issues that weren't the core reason for trusting God in the first place. And it's to this tension that I want to speak into today. If you can use your imaginations for a moment, and we're going to go way back to around, maybe around 30 AD, okay? So if you can go there with me, and if we were to put a microphone in front of the first Jesus followers and ask them, why are you following Jesus? Why have you choose to become what became known as Christians? Here's some answers that we would not have heard. We would not have heard an answer. Well, the reason I decided to follow Jesus is because he promised me success and he promised me riches and he promised me to be prosperous. You'll never find anyone of the first followers of Jesus that that was their reason. You will certainly not hear any of the first followers of Jesus give their reasons for following Jesus as Jesus somehow made some idea, make sense of them that all their dreams were gonna come true and all their prayers were gonna be answered how they wanted their prayers to be answered in the way they wanted their prayers to be answered when they wanted their prayers to be answered. Nor would any of them say that the reason they followed Jesus is because Jesus promised them a comfortable life. Certainly not. And I could keep listing all the reasons they wouldn't say. And the reason we know that is because we have a whole bunch of, those, of letters written by those who were there, and those who walked with Jesus, those who not only saw Jesus preach and teach, but they saw Him crucified. But the, the real kicker is they saw Him resurrected again, which authenticated everything Jesus taught. And if the microphone is put to them, we have their letters in our New Testament and nowhere do we see any of the Jesus followers give the reason for their faith as some peripheral issue, like their prayers being answered how they want, their success in life or all their dreams coming true. In fact, if we were just to interview one of Jesus' followers, let's say it's his first follower, one of his first, Peter. Peter, who was a fisherman and Jesus called him out of that profession to be a follower of his. If we were to ask Peter, Peter would likely say something like this. The reason I follow Jesus, let me get my best Peter voice on. I actually don't know what he would have sounded like, but, and I didn't want to be culturally insensitive if I did a horrible accent. Um, He would not say, or what Peter indeed would say, the reason he followed Jesus. Probably something like this. I became a Jesus follower because he believed in me when no one else did. And in fact, when I'd given up on myself, my own potential, he saw something in me that no one else did. And beyond that, he started showing patience with me when I was impatient. He showed patience with me when I was doubting. He showed patience with me when I was cruel. In fact, even when I resorted to physical violence, he still showed me patience. And even when I denied him and betrayed our friendship and betrayed his trust, and I saw him crucified, and I walked away from him. But let's put aside for a moment the fact that he came alive again. When he did come alive, and I was fearful of what he'd say to me, you know what he said to me? He loves me. He showed me forgiveness. Add to that, he 
I heard him for three years predict his own death and resurrection. (laughs) And he pulled it off. It's hard to argue with a resurrected guy. It's for all those reasons that I became, or I am, a follower of Jesus. Peter understood what the, the reason, where the reason for his hope was and why he was a Jesus follower. And I often compare some of the reasons that I deem reasons and good reasons to break up with faith. I look back at the first followers of Jesus and don't see that as any of the reasons they actually trusted Jesus in the first place. And so this morning, maybe you have a, a version of your faith that perhaps is something that we can consider. Is this something that is biblical? Is this something that is genuine? And is this something that Jesus actually encouraged himself? And Peter himself wrote about this. And we have two personal letters from Peter in our New Testament where he writes to Christians. Arguably, the Gospel of Mark has been considered uh, Peter's Gospel where he dictated it and Mark kind of scribed it down. But we know for a certainty that Peter wrote two letters that he authored to Christians that were scattered around the Roman Empire. And in his first letter, he writes to Jesus' followers about this very idea of knowing the reason for your faith. And here's how he writes it. He says, in your hearts, I want you to revere Christ as Lord. Now, this is a big statement because in the Roman Empire in the first century, they demanded that you declare Caesar was Lord. And in fact, if you didn't declare Caesar was Lord, your ability to buy and to sell and to associate in commerce within the Roman Empire was impeded drastically. In fact, you could be imprisoned or worse if you didn't worse if you didn't declare that Caesar was Lord. So for Peter to write this, you must in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. In other words, you say, listen, in public you might get around and say, yeah, yeah, you know, sure, Caesar is a Lord, you know, but in my heart, he is not Lord. Christ is Lord. And then he says, I want you to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, He's saying when you're going about following Jesus in your life, in the middle of a world where you have a oppressive, authoritative, you know, Roman Empire dictating so many parts of your life. And for many of you who have kind of bailed on the religion you got brought up with to follow Jesus and people see the way you live your life and they ask you, why the heck? Do you follow Jesus? Like, is it because you, He promises riches? Is because He promises you like multiple wives? Like, what is it? Like, I don't understand why following Jesus. Peter said, you make sure you are ready to give an answer to the hope you have. And he gave the reason right in the first sentence. He says, because in our hearts, there's one person who is Lord. There is one who is the boss. There is one who redeems our life. And this one is Jesus. Jesus is the reason for our faith. It's the fact that Jesus is Lord. It's not the outcome of an event that we're hoping for or an answer to a prayer that is the reason for my hope, and my hope that I have. The reason for the hope that I have is Jesus Himself. It was Christ. And the reason we know Christ is the reason for our hope. This is what, again, Peter would encourage those who was writing to say is it's because of Christ, it's Jesus. He was resurrected. And any person that can pull off their own resurrection, you generally go with whatever they taught to be true is in fact true. And so the resurrection authenticated not only all the claims and promises Jesus made, but funnily enough, it also authenticates our faith today. And I want you to hear me super clearly about this. Whether you've been a Jesus follower for a long time or you're a skeptic or curious or about to walk away from faith. Faith was always meant to begin and end with Jesus. Not an outcome or result of our hoping, and indeed we want that, and indeed that's part of that, but that's not what faith is built on. 
Peter would say here, listen, the reason for our hope that we have is not an event. It's not whether the election goes our way. It's not whether you get the house you want or the kids you want or the spouse you want. It's that Christ is Lord. This is the reason for our hope. And so when I encounter someone, and maybe you've encountered someone like this, that has, is tempted to break up with faith or is tempted to walk away from faith or indeed already has, or maybe doesn't want to engage with faith in the first place. I've encountered several, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means of the imagination, but several common reasons why I've seen people give for walking away from faith. It's made me go, I don't know if they were actually reasons for faith in the first place. Like if they were the reasons that you follow Jesus, you were following for reasons that he never invited people to follow for. For example, a big one is like, I've, I've chatted with a lot of people as they wrestle with Scripture and the Bible and, and there's division over how to interpret particular things from the Old Testament. Big one is what happened in the Genesis account. I've been following Jesus and reading the Bible for 36 years and I've still got a whole lot of questions. But you know what? My faith is not built on my interpretation of whether or not the seven days of creation were literal or figurative or something else. My faith is not built on that. My faith begins and ends with a resurrected Jesus. And if you would have asked any of the first Jesus followers why they followed Jesus, none of them would have said because he proved to me that Babel was a real tower that was built. Right? Or they would say, you know, he really convinced me that the flood was truly global. But that was none of the reasons they ever gave. And when I see people walking away from faith because of what I would say is a peripheral thing to Jesus, I'm like, well, there were never reasons that the first follower of Jesus followed Jesus anyway. Like if you would have asked James, the brother of Jesus, <laughs> why he believed in Jesus, James nowhere said, because he convinced me that Adam and Eve were real people. That wasn't the reason for his faith. He's like, I saw my brother crucified. And I was like, he deserved what he got. He was claiming to be God. What brother does that? And then he was resurrected. Hard to argue with the guys come back to life. Nowhere do we see that their faith was founded in, in and then these aren't questions that aren't important. They're important questions, but they're not the reason for faith. Indeed, another big one is the existence of suffering. And indeed, this is a big reason why we can be tempted to walk away from faith or to break up with faith, maybe disappointments or outcomes. But again, if you look at the record, records we have of the first Jesus followers, right? Sufferings were universal. Um, difficult moments, hardships, disappointments were universal. They all experienced this. Yet, yet these problems being solved were not the reason any of them chose that we see recorded to follow Jesus. They were never the reasons for the hope that they had. So maybe... Today, in the 21st century, we, if we're tempted, or maybe you're tempted to break up with faith over what would be considered in the Bible a non-issue, and if that's the case, that's a bad reason to break up with faith. But my point is, beyond that, is sometimes it is healthy to break up with a version of faith, but not faith itself. And if we're not intentional and we're not in, careful and maybe even sometimes humble enough, we can have a version of faith that perhaps wasn't what Jesus invited us into in the first place. Perhaps it's healthy that you and I break up with a version of faith that we got from, say, our parents. And whatever your story is and whether you had a faith background or a non-faith background, 
we all get influenced by the examples of others around us. And perhaps the example you got wasn't entirely biblical or wasn't entirely Christ-like. And maybe the version of faith that you inherited, perhaps for you it's awesome, but maybe for you it's not healthy. Maybe it's not helpful and maybe it's not godly. Perhaps it's the version of faith that you've gotten from pop culture and you've allowed YouTube and, <laughs> and you know, influencers and media personalities to dictate the version of faith that you have. Perhaps that's a healthy faith version of faith to actually break up with. Maybe the version of faith that you've got has come from an unmentored perspective. You've kind of grabbed bits and bobs here from stuff you've read of stuff you've seen, but never brought yourself into the world of someone who followed Jesus for years and going, can you explain this scripture to me? Can you help me work out how to keep my faith real when I'm going through this heartbreaking season right now? Maybe it's an unmentored perspective or maybe the version of faith you've got from an offense or a hurt, perhaps even an unrepented sin. And it's tainted faith for you. Now, there could be a whole lot more, but I want to put out there, maybe sometimes it is healthy to break it with a version of your faith, but not faith itself. So what is faith itself? What's it supposed to look like? Well, luckily for us, Peter goes on and elaborates on what this kind of faith looks like. So in a few verses before the one we just read, as he opens his letter up, he writes some very strong, hopeful words about faith. This is what he says. He says, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth. Think about how massive a statement like that is, to be like born again. Imagine if you had the chance to do life over again, knowing what you know now. But this is the significance of putting your trust in Jesus is to the human life. He's saying we experience new birth into a living hope. Here it is, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So is it to say our hope, the reason for our hope is that Jesus was resurrected. And because of that, it trumps all else and we can believe everything that he said. He goes on. And continues in the next verse and says, and enter an inheritance that can never, I love this, perish, spoil, or fade. And this is an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. In other words, he's saying this, the Christian hope, the reason we have faith in God is not because of something that can perish or spoil or fade. Think about how many things in your life have perished or spoiled or faded. And they can be things that you've prayed to God about and things that you've hoped in God for an outcome. And if they didn't work, Peter's trying to say, hey, listen, if something in your life can perish or spoil or fade, that is not what your faith is built on. Your faith is built on the resurrected Jesus. Or this is what at least it should be birthed in. He said, then this is an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. In other words, the Christian hope isn't something that is man-made, isn't something that can be conjured up through intelligence or through clever philosophy or reasoning. It's something that comes from the heart of your heavenly Father. The Christian hope is something that is eternal. It isn't something that comes and goes with culture and comes and goes with the tide and comes and goes with viruses and comes and goes with anything else you can foster and imagine that impedes faith. Your faith was always founded. The author and finisher of faith has always been Jesus. And so he warns, well, can we go back to that verse before? That I was talking about, thanks, Liv. He warns about anything that isn't from heaven, right? Anything that isn't this eternal view to take on where our faith has come from. Our faith has been built on eternal promise, not simply something temporal. But then he gets to the crux of all of our questions. Probably the question you're asking, particularly if you're tempted to break up with faith for a reason that you deem good, or maybe you're struggling with your faith for a reason that is indeed struggling. He answers the tension in the very next verse for us. 
He says, in all this, though, you greatly rejoice, meaning, you know, your eternal hope, the resurrection of Jesus, heaven. He goes, in all this, you greatly rejoice. And so we should. It's one of the reasons we sing regularly and give and serve. It's ways that we rejoice of what we've been given freely from our heavenly Father. Though, now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And doesn't he go right to the heart of often our temptation to break up with faith? It is grief, it's trials, it's suffering. In fact, some of the biggest reasons, he taps in right here, these are some of the biggest reasons why we're tempted to break up with faith and walk away from trusting God. Or maybe why you've got questions about God and whether you should actually trust Him in the first place. He, he nails it. Three of the biggest words, suffer, grief, trials. And these can often be the reasons that we deem good enough to doubt God's goodness towards us. But if we're honest for a moment, we'll recognize that these type of ideas, suffering, grief, trials, these are certainly not unique to Jesus' followers, to people of faith. These are indeed universal. Whether you're someone with faith in God or not, this is something that all people experience. They aren't exclusive to any one person or group. These are realities and pains and difficulties that humans have wrestled with and experienced and lived through and have to learn to negotiate with our whole lives. So in light of that, I think Peter would suggest that suffering and grief and trials, they are not reasons to break up with faith, but rather these are reasons for faith. And this indeed is some of the reasons why many people have, maybe you came to faith in Christ, is because as you were going through a season of suffering or grief in your life, and you tried to find hope in so many things, and in a desperate attempt, you turned to God, and you found Him. And you found that His grace was readily available. You found there was a peace that you can't explain or quantify or, 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 or articulate in a way that makes cognitive sense to anyone. But you just found some measure of hope and peace through just trusting Jesus with your life. In fact, these ideas, grief, trials, have often been the reasons that people have found deep and intimate faith with God. I think often the reason for that, and this isn't an extraction's imagination, is because we all know that suffering is a real human experience. We're alive, so we suffer. And this is so important that you, you get this clearly because it makes it such a huge difference for how we live out our faith. Suffering is not a sign that you lack faith in God or favor from God. Suffering is a sign that you're human. You and I can't control everything. We certainly don't have everything we want, when or how we want it. And so we experience suffering on different scales because we're alive, we exist. We live in the complex web of human decisions and faults and problems and evil and free will for thousands of years. And here's where you and I were born into a world that it's sixes and sevens trying to find its way. Life is complex, life is suffering. And indeed, suffering may exist on a scale. Not all suffering, we could say, is of equal pain, but it's always there. So the difference is not whether or not we experience suffering and grief and trials. The difference is how we respond to our suffering. And how we respond to our suffering 
will define so much of our lives, how we respond to it. And one of the difficulties in talking about this in an environment like this is I don't know your story like you know it. I know some of your stories and, you know, as much as this is a prepared message and it's, you know, from my heart and from my experience and from prayer, I'm not in your shoes. And so it can often, I don't want this to cheapen your experience by me just simply talking and, and as if I'm talking in absolutes because your season and your suffering is painful and it is real and it's yours, irrespective of comparing it to other people because you can't compare suffering to someone else. I'm suffering more than you. Well, I'm suffering less than you. It's not. You experience suffering, experience grief, you experiencing what you're experiencing. But, but you and I are invited to be intentional with how we respond to our grief and heartache. Last month, I briefly caught up with an older gentleman who I knew a lot when I was younger and he'd pastored for many years. An amazing guy. And um, in, in the past year or so, tragically, his um, wife of many decades has been going, um, suffering severely with Alzheimer's and it's come on super quick and she's deteriorated heavily. And no longer recognizes her husband, her children, her grandchildren, her health is deteriorating. And if you've experienced, you know, a loved one like this and it, it's, it's not only is it difficult to watch them suffer, it's a suffering that loved ones experience, seeing the person they love so much deteriorate in front of their eyes. And I had a couple of moments with this guy, and I, from my heart I said, because I, I saw how he'd been caring and loving her, and I just said, thank you so much for exemplifying how to love your spouse well in sickness and in health. And as I heard about his story and saw what his children had been posting online, watching how their dad loved on their mum, saw a man embracing his wife who was slowly evaporating. And what he was doing was, in the way he loved and cared for her, he was funneling his pain and grief into graciously serving and loving and dignifying her. And in a moment that no doubt is unmeasurably heartbreaking, I guess you could say he bent enough to bring light into the world instead of more darkness. And when we experience the darkness of grief and of loss and of pain, how we respond can either bring more darkness or can bring more light. And the Christian is invited to do something that makes no rational sense outside of the eternal hope, arguably, that we find in Jesus. If we recall the verse we just read, as Peter talked about trials and suffering and grief, he said, in all this, speaking of your eternal hope, he said, you greatly rejoice. And when we're experiencing suffering of any measure, the last adjective to describe how we're feeling is to greatly rejoice, right? (laughs) But this is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith, is that In the middle of heartbreak and grief, there seems to always be a reason to greatly rejoice. And if you're someone here who wouldn't call yourself a Christian or watching online and you maybe doubt the goodness of God or whether or not He's even real, it is this Christian practice, greatly rejoicing in all things, that is one of perhaps the most confounding or confusing things about the Christian faith. But for the Christian the fact that our hope isn't in 
the moment of pain we're experiencing, it's in something that is eternally promised through Jesus. This is the reason you will always find Christians, sometimes with tears streaming down their face, sometimes with their arms folded, but nevertheless, some songs seem to creep out of their lips and eventually find the means to greatly rejoice even in suffering and then to serve the world and to keep giving to the world even when times are difficult because our true hope is not from this world. It's from another world. It's from the kingdom of God. It's from the promised hope of eternity. And when the Christian engages with that hope, it then leads us to bring the hope that we've received back into the world. And so in seasons like we're experiencing, and listen, if, I'm not gonna, if you're not a Jesus follower, I'm not asking this of you, but if you're a member of Suncoast Church or Impact Church in Canberra, listen, you've got to sound different to every other comment that's happening about our world right now. You have the hope of heaven inside of you. Christians should sound different. Christians should respond differently. We should not have the echo of fear in our voices. We should have the echo of hope. Doesn't mean we deny or don't use our faculties to think rationally about things and engage in democratic processes and engaging with people. But our greatest hope isn't in who we elect or in decisions that the government's made. Our hope has never been in that, right? Our hope is that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, right? We don't look to Caesar for our hope and our sustenance. It's always been in Jesus. So when people go, why do you guys give? Like those of you that tithe, like you literally give like a percentage of everything you get. Why? Because our hope isn't in our bank balance of the economy. Like it's us responding to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Like we will be generous and we will serve and we will give and we will not give up on people and we will be a voice for people who don't have a voice and we will greatly rejoice and we will sing when it hurts and we will be there for others and we will pray when we're confused because ultimately our hope is not in something that is conjured up by government schemes or by political groups or by entertainment parties. It's like it's in a resurrected Jesus. We promise when we put our trust and hope in Him, there is an eternal reward. (laughs) Sorry, getting a bit carried away there. And in light of that, Peter brings this, I guess, tension to a close and uses an analogy that probably helps make so much sense about what we all feel when we're tempted to break up with faith because of something we're experiencing. This is what he says, the next verse. He said, these have come, meaning sufferings, trials, and grief, so that the proven, notice this word, it's not Guinness, okay, it's too early in the morning, but genuineness my type, my automatic typing got that wrong and so I had to fix it up. That could have been funny if I left it, hey? But anyways, not, not wouldn't be funny. Um, proven genuineness of your faith. Notice this, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, the genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, so to explain what happens to your faith during seasons of suffering, and heartache and trial and difficulty, he leverages the idea of gold and about how gold is refined in fire, right? Now, if you've ever seen the process of gold being refined in fire, maybe you've seen images like this or you've seen footage like this. When they dig, you know, I know a lot of you know this, but for those who don't, when they find, you know, raw gold in the earth, it's often kind of mixed and matched with like other minerals and 
um, you know, dirt and other rocks in there. So to get kind of pure gold, the gold we're used to seeing, like these beautiful bars or like the rings on your finger or the earrings or wherever else it might be, the, the idea of getting pure gold is what they would do that to a certain temperature they will heat the gold until it melts at the right temperature, the gold needs to become a liquid form. And then all the other metals or minerals that might be in the gold they dug up from the earth will then slowly come to the surface, right? And they get it like a big scooper. They go over the top and they scoop through it all like a big sieve, get all the impurities out. And once the gold then settles again, you have arguably, you know, super pure gold. This is what's called the refining process of getting genuine gold, if I can use that term. And I find it amazing that Peter would leverage this idea of gold when it comes to faith, because not only in our time, but even more so in the ancient world, as Peter was writing, this gold represented the most valuable thing in the world. And arguably, you could say it was the same today, right? The more gold you have, the more power you've got, the more options are at your fingertips, right? If you've got gold, you've got pretty much what, you've got almost everything that people fear to lose. And Peter says, your faith, this is so good. He says, your faith is worth more than the most precious thing on the planet. That's how much your faith is really worth, more than gold. In other words, and as he leverages this idea of then refining gold, he's saying this, hardship does to your faith what fire does to gold, refines it. So when you're experiencing pressure test when you're experiencing difficulty, when you're experiencing something that might tempt you to break up with faith, saying these are the very things that actually helps to refine your faith and maybe to break up with versions of your faith which you should never have had in the first place and come back with something that is pure, unadulterated, true, removing all toxins, all dynamics that were unnecessary. And when that happens, you're left with something pure, solid, strong, that has structural integrity and able to handle any kind of pressure or stress test that comes its way. And whenever, if you're anything like me, every time I've experienced some kind of stress or pressure in my life, it's amazing how when the squeeze is on, isn't this true, that things kind of come to the surface in your life. Things that you get impatient about, things that you get angry about, things that you're fearful about. When that, that squeeze is on, I'm reminded, this is a refining fire. And when things pop up to the surface in my life, I'm like, I'm glad I'm now aware that thing's in my life. And through prayer, repentance, confession, mentoring, counseling, it's like the big scooper comes through and gets all those impurities out of your life. Again, hardship does to our faith what fire does to God, it refines it. Because we wanna know, don't we, that our faith can handle the pressure. And if we look at Peter and who he wrote to, <laughs> in impossible situations, they still, come on, Christians, Greatly rejoice. Greatly rejoice. In fact, they're the movie that illustrated this so profoundly in ways that impacted me in the deepest of ways. A film called Napoleon Dynamite. And the scene where Napoleon's brother is a Tupperware salesman and to prove the structural integrity and the genuineness of the Tupperware quality, he puts the Tupperware through a stress test. Check it out. Ha <laughs> 
Best part of that is he just leaves, right? I'm out of here. Right, but here's the thing. Sometimes that can be like a picture. Something like, whoa, you get into the real pointy part of your message and you drop Napoleon Dynamite in? Yes, I would do. Like he's a prophet, right? Um, but he, this whole process of the stress test that our faith can come under to, to prove its worth or its value or its genuinity, this is, this is so important for us to wrestle with. And mainly because there is a term going around right now. It's an old term, sorry, it's a new term for an old topic, right? There's an old issue or an old idea, which is refining our faith or the refining fires. But the new term is this term called deconstructing faith. And I don't know if you've heard this, a lot of people write blogs about this or give their reasons for walking away from their faith and use this idea of they are deconstructing their faith. And deconstruction, I find, often happens because people have put their hope in a false promise. And they've kind of projected an internal need they have on God, which is something maybe God never promised. And because their need never got fulfilled the way they wanted it, they're like, well, then faith isn't real. And they start deconstructing. And indeed, sometimes that could be something super healthy to do when it comes to our faith, particularly if we're projecting something that should never have been there. And a healthy deconstruction, maybe it's healthy sometimes to deconstruct a version of our faith that was grounded in something other than Christ. But as I experienced a few years ago in London, deconstruction without reconstruction is simply destruction. And my wife and I went to a cafe, and in the cafe, it had on the menu there, um, deconstructed Vegemite on toast. Now, we were super curious as to what exactly this was, because, you know, you've seen beautiful deconstructed desserts and it's fancy. This is literally how it came out. So they spread the Vegemite and plonked the butter and toast. I'm like, I'm paying to make my own breakfast right now. It's an absolute joke, Right. So it wasn't that this was deconstructed. It was just never constructed. Like I'm paying for someone else's neglect. But it brings up, <laughs> brings up an interesting point, right? Deconstruction without reconstruction, reconstruction is just destruction. I should have found a more simpler term than that because I'm even getting confused by it. But here's the thing. Sometimes we can find ourselves breaking up with faith or rather deconstructing our faith because we encounter something that we have no theology for. And maybe it's suffering, it's doubt, it's the trial or grief you're walking through. Perhaps you've experienced an offense and someone has hurt you and you've got no theology for that. And you've got nothing in with to engage with faith with about that. You just have no answer for that because it's like I'm in a trial and why am I in a trial for? Is God not for me? And so you're deconstructing your whole faith. You've got no theology, maybe for seasons where there's silence. It's like, why are my prayers being answered? Or waiting seasons. And it's like, I've been waiting for this. And if you have no theology around that idea, you can often be left going, well, maybe I need to break up with my faith. Perhaps you have no theology around lack or sadness or isolation or oppression, whatever it might be. And so you find yourself breaking up what I hope not with faith in general, but just maybe with a version of faith you should have never had to begin with. And here's the point. I'll finish on this. Like Peter said, the mark of genuine faith, the mark of genuine faith, is to be able to differentiate between your present condition and your eternal hope. Genuine faith doesn't mean that you lack suffering or somehow you get through grief and trials with a big smile on your face. To greatly rejoice doesn't mean you're always happy. It's deeper than happiness, right? 
They said the mark of genuine faith is that you can differentiate between what you're experiencing right now and what we're all experiencing right now to certain degrees and ultimately our eternal hope. And so when I come to give and I come to serve and I come to love my loved ones and I come even environments like this to sing and to learn and to grow, a genuine faith, a mature faith, a growing faith says, I'm not gonna let the tone of my life and the tone of my singing and the tone of my love be dictated to by my present condition, but rather dictated by the eternal hope I have in Jesus Christ. And so talking about bending, not breaking, maybe it is time for you and I to break up with a version of faith. Perhaps there's a version of faith that has not been robust enough, big enough, biblical enough, and broad enough. Wow, it's a lot of Bs. I don't even intend to say that, right? But haven't been able to handle what you've been going through. Maybe that's a version of faith you've always had to break up with. It wasn't something that was grounded in the hope of Jesus, the promise of His resurrection, and the promise of His great joy for our lives. Maybe the healthiest thing for you and I to do is to break up with a version of faith that Jesus never invited us into, but yet to take it one step further and maybe we need to reconnect and rediscover a faith full of Jesus and full of joy. That recognizing even in the middle of my suffering and my grief and my trials, Jesus is present right there, loving me, standing with me, being for me, leading me, infusing my life with His promised Holy Spirit that helps me, that counsels me, that comforts me, that guides me, that leads me into all truth. And ultimately, I can be like what Peter says, to have a faith where I greatly rejoice in all seasons of my life. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for your loved ones. It's my prayer for my life. It's my prayer for our world. And may we be a church, and may we be Jesus' followers that shine this kind of hope and light into the world, a faith that isn't filled with empty, shallow, political, cultural, ideological promises that pick sides, no, no, but a faith that shines the life of Jesus Christ and a faith that shines the ability to greatly rejoice even in the middle of divisive and hard times. That's my prayer for you. So God, would you help us to be able to kind of find that median between the moments we're all in right now and our eternal hope? Specifically mindful of those who this morning are deep in grief and deep in trial and deep in heartache. May their lives today know Jesus, know hope, know your joy like never before. And may we rediscover and continue to grow in a faith that Jesus invited us into through his resurrection. We pray this in his name. Just before we close this morning, I wanna pray one more prayer with every head bowed just to create a moment, I guess, of um, privacy, a personal moment. And maybe you're someone that's never put your trust in Jesus. Or maybe you're someone that you had a version of faith that you realized wasn't something perhaps that Jesus invited us into for the first place. I'm gonna pray a prayer. I'm gonna ask us all to pray it out loud together of trusting our lives with Jesus and determining to put our trust and our faith in who Jesus is, not in any other vain and empty promise. And maybe you're someone who's never done that before or maybe you're someone who needs to do that in a new, fresh way. Well, I wanna invite you to pray this prayer as well. And so I know who's been included in this prayer for the first time 
or maybe a recommitment, could you just lift your hand up quickly so I'll see who it is, I'll see it and you can put it straight back down. Who can I include in this this morning? You wanna pray a prayer of committing your life to Jesus this morning and trusting Him. Maybe you need to recommit your life to Christ or do it for the first time. Just put your hand up, I'll see it and you can put it straight back down. Okay, that's awesome. Let's pray this prayer out loud together. Thank you, I saw those hands, that was awesome. Can we all say together, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me, giving me joy and an eternal hope. Today I choose to trust Jesus with all my life. Amen. Amen. Hey, for those of you that prayed that prayer for the first time or recommitment, whether online or in the room, you are awesome. And if we can help in any way, that's literally why we exist as a church. So please come and see one of our team at the Connect Lounge or DM us, direct messages on any of our platforms. Uh, You can scan our QR code on the seat in front of you. We'd love to just help you any way we can and uh, help you along your journey. Hey, God bless you. Have the most wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, Next week to finish this series, our in-house rabbi himself, Brendan Woods, will be sharing, which I'm super excited about. God bless you. Have a great lunch. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.